where do you go after you die? I think it's a fundamental question that people have been asking themselves since the beginning of time, since the beginning of death in the Garden of Eden. And God in his grace has told us much about where we go after when we die. But even more importantly, God has given us his son so that we can know that we're going to go with, to be with the Lord when we die and have all the uh, hindrances and encumbrances of being sinful people who are prone to die, taken away. No death, no mourning, no crying, no pain in heaven. And uh, it's so wonderful that we have a Savior that makes that possible, and we have a Word of God that tells us about it so we can take assurance, comfort, hope, um, blessing in this life, knowing what will happen to us after we die when we know Jesus is our Lord and Savior. What I'd like to do is just do a very quick recapping of Lesson 3, the last lesson we had together. And then I'm going to go into a couple standalone topics that are questions that you or some people you know may have about what happens to a person after they die. So by way of review, last time we talked about two kinds of resurrection. A resurrection to life, a bodily resurrection to having eternal life and, and satisfaction in the presence of God. And the other kind of variety of resurrection was a resurrection of judgment which is quite the opposite, a bodily resurrection, not to satisfaction, but to perpetual dissatisfaction, a torture, pain, alienation from God in a place the Bible calls hell. So there's two kinds of resurrection. And then last time we looked at the fact that there are two installments of the kind of resurrection we call the resurrection to life. There, the first installment of that resurrection to life is at the rapture of the church. When Jesus Christ comes and gathers out his bride, and the bodies of Christians who died in the church age are resurrected. And uh, the living and the resurrected dead go to be with Christ in heaven at the rapture, uh, resurrection to life. The second installment of the resurrection to life occurs seven years later when Jesus Christ returns the second time to set up his kingdom. And at the return of Christ, at the second coming return of Jesus, the resurrection to life there will be the resurrection of all the Old Testament saints who were saved by grace through faith in the Old Testament times, and their bodies are resurrected at that time, as are the bodies of the persons who came to trust Jesus as Lord and Savior during the seven years of tribulation. The people who entered the seven years of tribulation, not as Christians, therefore they went into the tribulation, they turn to Christ in faith, many of whom will be Jewish, but they will die in that future seven years of tribulation. They will not take the mark of the Antichrist, whatever that mark will be. And they will, many be beheaded, uh, they will die martyr's death. The vast majority of converts in the tribulation will die a martyr's death. It is at the second coming event that their bodies will be resurrected. So this second installment of the resurrection to life is at the second coming that is at the end of the tribulation and the beginning of the millennium and Old Testament saints' bodies will be resurrected and tribulation age martyrs' bodies will be resurrected so that both groups can go into the thousand-year kingdom of Christ on earth doing meaningful labor, uh, worshiping and enjoying creation set straight and all the things that will be uh, true on earth for a thousand years with Jesus as king. Now I want to get um, 
go a little further with this, but still by way of review. So generally speaking, generally speaking, when a believer dies, their soul and their spirit go to heaven. And generally speaking, when a believer dies, their body goes to the grave. And there is a resurrection that leads to a favorable judgment of reward, the bima, and the believer enters into the new heaven and the new earth. So generally speaking, a believer dies, spirit and soul go to heaven, body goes to grave, uh, body is resurrected, reunited with soul and spirit, positive judgment because Christ has paid for all of our sins, and together, our body, soul, and spirit, each individual goes to enjoy the new heaven and the new earth. And by the way, the Randy Alcorn book called Heaven will teach you a lot about what that new heaven and that new earth will look like. Now let's flip the coin. Generally speaking, what will happen for an unbeliever when they die? Generally speaking, when an unbeliever dies, their soul and spirit goes to Sheol, otherwise known as Hades, and their body goes to the grave. They are resurrected. They are judged by Christ, the great white throne judgment, and their resurrected body, soul, and spirit as a complete whole goes away from God to the lake of fire forever. That's the, what happens generally. Specifically, let's get specific now. Let's talk just about church-age believers like us, people who live in the time after the day of Pentecost, Acts 2, and before the rapture of the church. That's church-age believers. That's you and me. What happens to us when we die? Well, when we die, our soul and our spirit go to heaven immediately. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. But our bodies go to a grave. And then when resurrection takes place for us, which is at the rapture of the church, we are reunited, our body and soul is reunited with our spirit. All together, we go to be with Christ, ever to be with the Lord, therefore comfort one another with these words, and we stand individually before the Bema judgment seat of Christ. I haven't taught you before, but the Bema judgment seat of Christ, Bema was the Greek word for the rostrum, where in the ancient times they awarded the Olympic wreaths to the athletes who were able to do well in their Olympic events. So the Bema was the place of, of judgment, the place of reward. Also, the Bema was the place in the center of a city, say, like Corinth, where the city fathers judged on civic matters. So the Bema is where the church-age believers, um, body, soul, and spirit together, appear for judgment from Jesus with respect to reward given or withheld for the millennial kingdom time. And then after that, there, we're with Christ. So... Church-age believers, that's what happens to us. What about if you were a David in the Old Testament or a Ruth? Well, what if you are a person that you may know that won't come to Christ before the rapture and goes into the tribulation, but turns to Christ uh, in the tribulation 
exercises saving faith. What about those people who die? What happens, what happened to the Old Testament people and what will happen to the tribulation age believer martyr? Well, at death, the soul and spirit goes to heaven. The body goes to the grave. And the resurrection for these individuals is not at the rapture, but it's the second installment of the resurrection to life, which happens at the second coming of Christ. And that resurrection brings a judgment at the second coming event for these believers that will allow them to reign with Christ in the millennial kingdom. Now, I want to turn from some of the nuts and bolts to some of the more practical questions that people have concerning death and what happens to you after you die. And uh, one of the questions that um, frequently arises is suicide. What happens to an individual who takes their own life? Well, we know that um, we aren't to do that. We're told that life is God's to give and not ours to determine the length of. Um, we aren't to murder. And when a person suicides, they murder themselves. And so we know it's a sin. But the question becomes, is suicide an unpardonable sin for a born-again Christian? Put another way, can you truly be saved, sin by suiciding, and still expect to go to heaven. Well, my question would be to the person who wonders that, is how many of your sins were future relative to Jesus Christ's cross? If this is, if this is Christ's cross, and this is where you live today, when you trusted Christ to be your savior, all of your sins were future to Christ's cross, or put another way, Christ died for those sins before you committed them. Okay, so let's take your life a little further on your timeline, and you trust Jesus to be your Savior, so His blood covers all your sins. Well, what happens if one of those sins after conversion is the sin of suicide? My understanding of the atonement and the shed blood of Christ would be that that sin would be paid for as well. That suicide doesn't prove you, does not prove that you weren't really saved necessarily. Suicide is not the unpardonable sin. But this, this does come into play is that if a believer, true believer, suicides, then they negate the time on earth they otherwise would have had to bring glory to God. And so there is going to be a loss of reward at the Bema judgment seat of Christ. If a person kills themselves, they take away ministry and length of life that God intended for them to have so that they might serve him with the right motivation and see fruit for their labor, that he might reward them with a place of um, delegated uh, rulership under King Jesus in the millennial kingdom. 
So I don't see suicide as an unpardonable sin. I see it as a sin that Jesus has uh, died and paid for. Um, the other thing I would say about this is that um, many times individuals, be they Christian or non-Christian, who do take their lives have a form of mental illness often. And I think that for too long in some evangelical circles that mental illness has had a stigma attached to it that ought not to be there. I mean, if someone stands up in a, a prayer meeting in our church and says, I'm diabetic, I've just been recently diagnosed as being diabetic, we don't look down on them if they come back the next prayer meeting and say, now I'm on insulin. We say, good, insulin will help control blood sugar and your diabetes can be managed. Why would it be, or would it be, that if a Christian, a born-again Christian, stood up in a prayer meeting and says, I am battling very dark thoughts in depression. Sometimes I don't want to live. Is that a different kind of sickness than diabetes? Yes, it's mental illness. But is mental illness a sign of spiritual shortcoming and sin necessarily? I don't think so. And just like we don't look down on the recently diagnosed diabetic to get insulin, I don't think we dare look down our nose at the person who admits that they are battling uh, serious depression with suicidal ideation. And they come back maybe the next day and I said, I saw a psychiatrist and, and he's uh, given me a medication to try to affect the, the amines, the brain uh, chemicals in my brain so that I don't have these dark thoughts and I don't feel entirely hopeless and I'm not able to function like I used to when I was clear of mind. So suicide's an awful thing. Suicide's a sin, but I believe it's a sin that Jesus Christ has died for, for the, and for the believer in him who succumbs to that awful uh, pressure or hopelessness and does take their life, I do not, do not think that means that Jesus takes away their salvation. And I hope it doesn't mean that they were in a church that wouldn't let them be honest about what they were battling or worse, would have discouraged them from getting psychiatric help when there are psychiatric uh, therapies that can help a person uh, who is suicidal. The other thing to say about suicide, suicide uh, may seemingly end the problems for the person who suicides, but that leaves all of those problems and far more with the people who love them who are left behind. And, and suicide is uh, perhaps one of the most selfish of all sins that a person can commit. Um, and so if, if there would be anybody in, a, in any of the many churches uh, that, that battle with depression or that, that battle with thoughts of suicide, please know that I would like you to come to me and I would like you to know that I will not uh, scold you but I will take you to God's word for the hope that you need. And I will take you, if I can, if you need help, to a psychiatrist who can assess you and perhaps uh, prescribe some medication for you that can help you. And um, I just want us to be a culture where uh, mental illness is not ignored and mental illness is not scorned. Uh, we want to be a community where we can be um, whole in Christ 
and admit when we aren't feeling whole that we can get help from one another through the Word of God, but from each other as well. Suicide is not a sin that can take salvation away from the person who suicides. Because in John chapter 10, the Lord Jesus said, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give eternal life to them, and they shall never perish. And no one shall snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Persons who believe that a Christian, a true Christian, who suicides, uh, loses salvation, are really believing that the Christian who God the Father sent to Christ for salvation, Christ closed his hand on that Christian securely to hold that Christian safe so that they shall never perish, believes that when God the Father's figurative hand is put over Jesus' hand that holds that Christian, the person who believes that this true Christian who suicides loses and forfeits salvation is really teaching that the Christian who suicides has more power than the grip of Jesus Christ on that person, can somehow blast out of that secure grip by suiciding. Furthermore, the person who believes that the true Christian can lose salvation by suiciding believes that that Christian in the act of suicide can blow open the securing grip of the father's hand and the son's hand and therefore suicide uh, loses uh, salvation. I don't see the scriptures teaching that. I don't think anyone is stronger than Jesus' grip on them and I don't think anyone is stronger than God the Father's additional grip on them. Jesus said, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give eternal life to them, and they shall never perish. And no one, not even they themselves, no one shall snatch them out of my hand, Jesus said. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand, not even they themselves. Another topic that people often ask me about is cremation. And um, people are wondering, is it Christian to have uh, a loved one's body cremated, or is it Christian to, have, to ask for one's own body to be cremated? Um, I don't see that Scripture speaks uh, directly to the question. Um, I do know this, though, that um, whether a body is buried or buried at sea or um, cremated, that God not only can reconstitute the molecules of that body to make a resurrection body, but that he will. And it makes total sense that if God made all of the molecules that are me in my mother's womb, that no matter where my body winds up after I die, God is able to reconstitute my body to be me in a resurrected body that others can understand and recognize. So the simple answer to the question is that I think it is permissible for a born-again Christian to ask to be cremated after death. I think it's also um, 
Many times it can be cost efficient. There can be many reasons why a person asks to do that. Uh, but I think there's a liberty in our standing with God that we can do this if this is the option that we choose for ourselves before we die, or this is the option that our loved ones choose for our bodies after we die. It's not unchristian. The death of a baby. The death of a baby is one of the most difficult sorrows that any parents could have, any family could endure. Babies are, are given to us as a gift from God with all of the prospects of long and, and enjoyable life before us. We assume that our, our babies will be born whole and healthy. We assume that our babies will uh, not die uh, in the womb. We expect that our babies won't die in delivery. We expect that our babies won't die shortly after delivery. But, but these things do happen because we live in a fallen world. And, and sin brings death uh, not only to adults, but sometimes to, to babies. And um, the classic passage there where uh, David has uh, fallen into sin, sexual sin, with Bathsheba, uh, a child is conceived. Um, David uh, tries to cover his sin by by uh, various m methods, and uh, Uriah, um, the husband of the Bathsheba, comes home from war, and and all of David's plans to um, cover his sin don't work out. And so what David does is he um, orchestrates a, a military murder. He puts Uriah in the front line intentionally withdraws military support and Uriah is killed. So David murders Uriah and um, has had this baby due to adultery and, and um, the baby is, is judged of God and the, and the baby doesn't live. And it's a consequence of David's sin. And um, he goes into mourning. Um, before the child dies, he's, he's in mourning. And then uh, he's fasting. He's not doing personal grooming with shaving and what have you. And then uh, they bring word to him that the baby has died. And uh, he shaves. He grooms himself to go back into life. And uh, basically they ask him, you know, when the baby was still living, why were you in mourning and in fasting and, and uh, a depressed state? And now that the baby is gone, uh, you come back into life. And he says, uh, uh, the baby can't come to be with me, but I can come to be with the baby. And um, the, the thought there is that um, David knew that the child was going to make it to heaven and that David, based on his faith in God, expected also to go to heaven. So David was looking past the tragedy and the pain of the child's death to the reunion that the child would have um, with him in heaven. Some people say that all that David was saying in that passage was that he was going to die like the child. Um, in other words, that it wasn't a, a reunion in heaven that, that made him shave and get back into life, but that it was that, that he too would join the child in, in, in the grave. I, I don't see that as being necessarily comforting. 
um, to be able to get back into life with that prospect. Well, I'm going to die too. Uh, let's get on with it. Um, but another passage that seems uh, to tie into me is that when Jesus, uh, in Matthew 19, when Jesus was uh, teaching and, and his disciples saw children around him and, and they tried to get the children out of there, you know, as if they weren't important, uh, Jesus said, let the little children come to be and forbid them not, for of such is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus was basically teaching that you can't get into heaven except you have a childlike, innocent uh, faith in him. And so that he wasn't, Jesus wasn't um, into theology lessons over children. He was saying, in fact, children have a theology lesson to teach grown-ups, which is that uh, they, they loved Jesus, they trusted Jesus, they came to Jesus, they wanted to be with Jesus. And he basically said, grown-ups need to be like that if they ever hope to see heaven. So that is less direct, perhaps, but to me that's a, a way of saying that um, when a baby dies, that Jesus' heart is wounded, his heart is broken, and he says, let the little children come to me, and, and don't forbid them, for such is the kingdom of heaven. Now, those of you who this issue has touched down upon, so it's not theory, but it's practice. I have two, two resources I'd like to recommend. Uh, this resource is Safe in the Arms of Jesus by Robert Leitner, who is a retired Dallas Theological Seminary professor. Uh, it's, a very, it's a very lovely book. He uh, makes the case that heaven is opened to persons who cannot believe in Jesus. The mentally retarded, um, a stillborn baby, a very, very young child. He doesn't make the case that the heathen person in Africa gets heaven because the heathen person in Africa is capable of believing in Jesus. But Dr. Leitner says for the for the baby who's born at birth or, or dies at birth, or the child who dies very, very young, incapable of understanding sin, substitution, and faith. Dr. Leitner makes the case that those persons, including the severely mentally retarded, that there's a place reserved in heaven by the shed blood of Christ. It's a very good book. It's a suitable book to buy and give to a, a, a couple that have lost a baby to death. Uh, safe in the Arms of Jesus. Almost the same title, but not quite, is another excellent book, Safe in the Arms of God. Uh, John MacArthur has written Safe in the Arms of God, and it too presents the case that uh, God provides salvation to uh, babies that are not capable of trusting Jesus to be their Savior before they die. And so that could be a useful tool uh, for you to consider as well. And while I'm recommending tools, again, the one I've been recommending in this series, uh, One Minute After You Die by Erwin Lutzer, and Heaven by Randy Alcorn, Heaven uh, by Randy Alcorn. I have some other little booklets here. I, I'm not sure that they're all in print still, but um, two by the Radio Bible Class. Uh, one is How... Can I Live With My Loss? Speaking to a person who's uh, in heavy bereavement due to the loss to death of a loved one. And then the question that we're answering in this series, where do we go from here? 
where do we go from here? And this is a little radio Bible class booklet that is speaking to the same topic that we're doing in this series. And these topics, these booklets are through the radio Bible class. This is a booklet that is not um, written to Christians. This is a tract. This is a gospel tract by Mark Cahill. And it's called One Second After You dot 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 die. And um, it's written with biblical truth about what happens to a person after they die. But it's written from the perspective of calling people who don't know Christ as Savior to believe in Him as Savior before they die. And so that is a helpful tract. And then this is a booklet that Elizabeth Elliot has written, Facing the Death of Someone You Love. Uh, Elizabeth is now with the Lord Jesus in heaven herself, but her missionary husband, Jim, was martyred in Ecuador. And she's written this little booklet, Facing the Death of Someone You Love. So I hope that this is helpful to you. The last thing I'd like to take up is um, the whole concept of um, back from the dead experiences, that people say they died, they went to heaven, and they came back and they start to talk about heaven. Basically, um, I want to lean heavily upon Dr. John MacArthur's response to some of this in these last few moments. Scripture definitely says that people do not go to heaven and come back. It says in Proverbs 30, verse 4, who has ascended to heaven and come down? And then the answer is given in John 3, verse 13. The answer is no one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. All of the accounts of heaven in Scripture are visions, not journeys taken by dead people. And even visions of heaven are very, very rare. You can count them all on one hand. Only four of the authors in the Bible were blessed with visions of heaven and wrote about what they saw. The prophets Isaiah and Ezekiel and the apostles Paul and John. Two other biblical figures, Micaiah and Stephen, got glimpses of heaven, but what they saw is merely mentioned, not described. 2 Chronicles 18.18 18 and Acts 7.55. MacArthur points out, all of these were prophetic visions, not near-death experiences. Not one person raised from the dead in the Old or the New Testaments ever recorded for us what he or she experienced in heaven. That includes Lazarus, who spent four days in the grave. Paul was caught up into heaven in an experience so vivid, he said he didn't know whether he went there bodily or not, but he saw things that are unlawful to utter, so he gave no details. He covered the whole incident with just three verses in 2 Corinthians 12, 2 through 4. All three biblical writers who saw heaven and described their visions give comparatively sparse details, but they all agree perfectly. Isaiah 6, 1 to 4, Ezekiel 1 and chapter 10, Revelation chapters 4 through 6. They don't agree with these uh, concocted reports on heaven that it is said that little children died and went to heaven and saw things and then came back and talked about those things. The biblical authors that had any glimpse of heaven 
predominantly reported that they were fixated on God's glory there. They said that God's glory defines heaven and illuminates everything that is in heaven. They are, they were rather overwhelmingly chagrined, petrified, silenced by the sheer majesty of God's holiness and notably missing from all of the biblical persons who saw anything into heaven, noticeably missing from their accounts are the frivolous features and juvenile attractions that seem to dominate every account of heaven currently on the bestseller list or in the movie theater. I would agree with Dr. MacArthur when he says this, evangelical readers and moviegoers' discernment skills are at all-time low. And that's why books and movies like this proliferate. There's going to be a new published, uh, new edition published of John MacArthur's classic book, The Glory of Heaven. It will include uh, critiques of Heaven is for Real and of The Boy Who Came Back from Heaven, plus extended evaluations of a few other bestsellers in the same vein. It's going to be published by Crossway. And uh, heaven's a lot, lot more glorious than any of these current bestseller attempts to describe it. So I'm pleased that we could look together in these lessons as to what happens to us after we die. And I hope that by learning what happens to us after we die, that it'll change us how we live now, that it'll make us want to tell others about heaven, tell others about forgiveness that they might avoid hell. Let's make that the bottom line application of what happens to us after we die. God bless.